Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this is our first podcast, I believe, of the new year, and I'm doing it during December, but this is the one that you're going to see January 3rd or 4th, I believe. Um, this was some part of a presentation I did at RSNA as part of the Cardiac CTA quiz cases, and so what I'll entitle it this time is Interesting Cases in Cardiac CTA 2010. And those of you who were at the RSNA, uh, I gave this on Thursday, and by Thursday I'd been there six days, and you kind of feel like you're Larry David at that point, uh, and that's pretty much how you feel at six days. So what I did is, it's part of the session, we showed cases, we discussed them, and there was answers with audience response. So you're the audience, you'll do the responding, but let me discuss the cases with you. So the first case I asked, which post-processing technique is most accurate for defining percent stenosis of the coronary arteries, volume rendering, MIP or curve planar reconstruction. And you can see from the series of images very nicely on this volume rendering, you see the coronal, you see the uh, left anterior descending and circ very, very nicely. You get very good visualizations. But one issue we've often commented on is that volume rendering varies from different vendors, that you have a lot of flexibility with volume rendering. And it's very good for showing the vessels as the image on your left shows showing both left and right coronaries, but since you can do lots of parameter shifting, you can create or hide a stenosis. On the other hand, you compare it to a case like a sliding MIP on the next image, and you could of course see in this case where the SA nodal branch is coming up the right coronary, and you can see the left main coronary as it goes to LAD. Uh, those images are probably uh, better, and here's just another example. So a combination of curved planar reconstruction where you're following the vessel. Here we're following the LAD very nicely. And again, just compare the same vessel, LAD, looking at both the curved planar reconstruction and looking at the patient's volume rendering. In this case, both of them look perfectly normal. But again, um, the curved planar reconstruction, the ability to track the vessel, all vendors have some sort of software that allows you to track down the center line. And that's going to be your best technique, that curved planar reconstruction, going down the center line, really allowing you to rotate the vessel around. MIP can be very helpful, though MIP, as we know, has issues, as in this case, when there's calcification present, because depending on how you orient the vessel, you can show more or less calcification in terms of decreasing the luminal diameter. And if you rotate things, you can make stenosis uh, 100% just by that projection technique. Again, same case with the uh, volume rendering. Now, it's true that even with MIP, when you have very extensive calcifications, in this case, it is very tricky. It gets very hard. You can, again, rotate the images to get the optimal perspective. But even the best of techniques is very difficult in the face of extensive calcification. But if I go back to the question, what's the best technique in most cases? I would say curved planar reconstruction is your answer. Then I asked the second question. Which imaging technique has higher spatial and temporal resolution? Is it a new uh, state-of-the-art dual-source scanner or classic uh, catheterization? And the people got, uh, some said A, some said B. The important thing to remember is catheter angiography still has the best technical parameters. Temporal resolution is about 8 milliseconds, spatial resolution is 0.2, and the radiation dose is 2 to 6. State-of-the-art CT will give you high spatial resolution under 0.4 millimeters. Temporal resolution is 0.75, and radiation dose is particularly good now 
under three millisieverts. But you can see when you compare the two studies that the spatial resolution and temporal resolution is surely better on catheter uh, angiography. So that's the right answer is the catheter angiography. You can ask the question, how good can CT get? Can we match catheter angiography? I think eventually the answer is yes, but there are all sorts of issues. And there's a good article by Tom Floor looking at some of the possibilities of where things can go and what some of the potential limitations are. So they do make the point that the issue with limited resolution in CT has many. Calcium blooming artifact is due to insufficient spatial resolution. A limited ability to characterize plaques in detail, particularly lipid versus fibrous plaques, is one of the consequences. Now you could say, why don't we just increase the resolution? Well, to double the resolution without affecting image noise, so let's say you wanted to achieve 0.25 isotropic resolution, that comes very close to classic angiography, instead of 0.5, you would need to increase the dose by a factor of two to the fourth, or a 16-fold increase. So getting that spatial resolution is possible, but now without a dose, that would be just totally unacceptable. What can you do without increasing dose? New detector material, something you see GE going after. Improved detector electronics, something you see Siemens and GE pushing. And post-processing improvements, these new iterative algorithms uh, are being developed. GE has published an article, Siemens presented at RSNA, and these may be areas where you'll see some change. Now, what about temporal resolution? Well, we could increase the gantry speed time, but under 0.2 seconds is almost physically impossible. You could put more x-ray tubes rather than two, put four or eight. That's uh, a possibility. And multi-segmental reconstruction, uh, which is being implemented, though it's limited at high and irregular heart rate. So there are potential possibilities, but at least from a numbers perspective, catheter does tend to win the battle, but that doesn't mean it's more accurate, it's just on those numbers. Okay, then I got into some cases and I asked, what's the best diagnosis in this patient with atypical chest pain? And you look at a volume rendered views, and I'll show you a few images, and take a look and focus at the patient's left anterior descending coronary artery. And when you follow it through, take a look at it again on these images and you're watching it, look how it's going through what appears to be the myocardium and here it is again on a MIP and then in volume rendering. So I then ask you the question, what's the best diagnosis? LAD stenosis, non-critical LAD stenosis, myocardial bridging or spasm in the LAD. And you recognize from that appearance what we were dealing with is myocardial bridging. The myocardial bridging is a congenital anomaly seen in up to 0.25 or up to 2.5% of angiographic studies, most commonly seen in the LAD. It can result in symptoms beginning the third decade of life, and it really depends on the length of the bridge and how deep it is. Um, there are lots of articles, people comment on it. Um, again, most patients are asymptomatic and most people feel it's of no clinical significance, but in a patient with atypical chest pain with no other source, it may be important. Now, it's easy to define, and we see it more frequently on CTA than we do on classic catheterization because of its many of the shorter segments are easy to define. And here's just classic myocardial bridging going from normal. And you can see that when you look at the two examples of myocardial bridging, 
The difference between cases will be the length of the bridge, how far it's extended, and its depth. A couple other articles looking at some of the numbers. Uh, in this article, 3.5% of patients had myocardial bridging. Again, it's the LAD that's most common. And in the same article, the length of the tunneled artery was between 6 and 22 millimeters with a mean of 17 millimeters and a depth mean of about 2.5. So again, you can get a feel of what the typical bridge is. Deeper or longer can be problematic. Another article uh, by Zena, myocardial bridging predisposes to development of atherosclerotic disease in the coronary segment proximal to the bridge. This may indicate that the myocardial bridge should be considered an anatomic risk factor in the evaluation of coronary artery disease. So again, there's a lot of different thought processes going on. And another article, Hazer-Rallon, MDCT is an effective non-invasive tool for diagnosing myocardial bridging. CT is excellent by showing the length and depth of the tunneled artery and diameter and percent stenosis in the segments showing myocardial bridging in systolic and diastolic phases. Okay, so something to be aware of. I comment on it. Some people say don't comment on it. I do, but again, something to look for. Another case. Okay, patients undergoing a, a coronary CTA and what's the best diagnosis? And what I'll do is, uh, just to save some time, and I, again, you're getting this as a lecture, look at the patient's left atrial appendage. And I'm gonna ask you, what is that? Well, when you start looking carefully, you realize there's a filling defect in the left atrial appendage. So I'm gonna ask you, what is it? Is it a pseudothrombus? Is it an atrial thrombus? Is it myxoma or metastasis? Well, when you look at it carefully, you recognize that it has almost like a fluid-fluid level. And thrombus do not give you that fluid-fluid level. What you classically see is a pseudoclot, and it's very common when you scan early in the left atrial appendage. So something very much to be aware of. Now, when you have a real thrombus, here's a good example. You see it's a filling defect. It's not a layering out. It's a discrete filling defect. And in this case, of course, you could also see very nicely as you scanned into the abdomen, you saw an infarct in the kidney. And that's one of the uh, issues with uh, atrial thrombi that it can be seated distally. A number of different articles. And there was a couple of really good articles. Here's one by her. A two-phase CT uh, with 64 slides, a non-invasive technique, accurate for detecting left atrial thrombi and differentiating thrombus from stasis in stroke patients. And in fact, in this article, when they looked at the numbers, they had a sensitivity of 100% and specificity of 98%. Now, you'll notice they used the word two-phase cardiac CT because the important thing to recognize is at times on the early phase, the correct phase for doing the coronaries, you will see this pseudothrombus present. So what they did is after they did their regular CT, 30 seconds later, they did a repeat CT scan. And at 30 seconds, it filled in. So the filling in is really something that's just a matter of time. And if you have any doubt or any question, just go back and get a few images. It's not a very common finding. It's occasional, but again, it can be problematic. And you don't want to overcall or undercall the presence of thrombus, which can be critical. So simply a delayed scan in those cases will be helpful. Okay, very good. The next case, what's the best diagnosis here? And I threw this case in because of the last case, and this case is kind of easy. Uh, this was an atrial myxoma, very large mass, and I'm not even gonna quiz you on it. Just to make the point, this ain't a pseudothrombus. 
large mass. Left atrium is most common. Calcifications, not uncommon. You can see the stipple calcifications here as I show you the volume rendered views. Defines it very nicely. I could revert to the negative display. You see it coming off the wall. And again, here it is again on a negative display. So uh, this was a great case of an atrial myxoma. And I've spoken about that at one of my other talks, but just a few things to remind you. It's the most common primary benign tumor of the heart. Typically, as in this case, arises in the left atrium near the intraatrial septum. In select cases, when it's small, it can be difficult to distinguish from thrombus, but not that difficult. There's been articles, there was a good article by Scheffel looking at thrombus and myxoma and felt that it could be differentiated in most cases, but not always. And in this article, what the authors looked at were a number of different findings from attenuation to size to left versus right atrium to origin of the mass to shape and mobility and prolapse. So what did they find? The attenuation, no difference. If I see calcification, I feel more comfortable with myxoma, though theoretically thrombus can calcify long term. Size of mass, myxoma is usually larger, as in the case I just showed you, that's definitely true, but many of them are two to three centimeters, so it's not helpful either way. Left versus right atrium, it ain't gonna help. Origin of mass, thrombi usually in left atrial appendage, so that can be helpful. Remember I showed you the tricky case of pseudothrombi before. The villus shape is more common in myxomas, but I don't find that very helpful. Myxomas are more mobile, so if you do 4D imaging, that indeed is the case. Uh, myxomas tend to have a stalk and will flop on the stalk. Thrombi tend to have wider bases. And in terms of prolapse, there's no difference. So I think typically it's not an issue. Also, history is very helpful. With thrombus, particularly the right side of the heart, it's often related to catheters being present or catheters having been in place previously. So important to recognize. Let's do one last case. And I asked this case, and this was one many people got wrong, and I think it makes a very important point. I asked for the percent stenosis in the left anterior descending coronary artery, and I showed you a few images. And what you can see here is there's a calcified plaque. On these images, it's eccentric. In fact, the lumen looks perfect. And then here it is two more images. And the image in the bottom right, you see that the thrombus, you can swear the thrombus is occluding the vessel. And if I look at it, and you can see when I circle it, what's that, thromb what's that plaque doing? It looks like it's occluding the vessel. And I could rotate it some more. And here it's not occluding, and I can rotate it some more, and here it is occluding. So I asked you the question, based on these images, the patient has a critical stenosis of the LAD. True, false, or indeterminate? And the answer was false. And the point being here is when you look at MIP images, and I've said this before, MIP is a projection technique. So here you can see very nicely the lumen is not narrowed. It's positive remodeling. But here, again, but here when I rotate around, it looks like it's occluding. And the issue is with MIP reconstruction. Again, you want to be very careful when you have MIP imaging and calcification. You can easily overcall the presence of disease. So not a problem. And you can see very nicely on this example as well uh, with volume rendering. Look how nicely you see the plaque. Uh, very, very nice visualization of the plaque. It's eccentric. There's no stenosis present. Now, let me just uh, use this moment to give, go over one point. 
When you try and determine severity of stenosis, people use different criteria. And again, it's important to at least be consistent with own, within your own institution. Some people use normal, minimal, mild, moderate, severe, occlusive. Well, a good article by Ella Kazaruni talks about what this means. So minimal under 25%, mild 26 to 50, moderate 51 to 70, severe 71 to 99%, and occlusion 100%. I think sometimes it's difficult. What we tend to do is under 50%, 50 to 70, and over 70. So I think those numbers work very well. Whatever you use in your situation, um, that's the right thing for you. So what we'll do here is I have a few more cases and why don't I leave you at this case and we'll pick it up a little bit later. Thanks very much and see you later.